I know we have a few people in the congregation who have their own chickens and gather their own eggs. We've got up in Sherman, we have uh, the Rosses, and uh, let's see, who else does that up there? Oh, the Averitts, of course. They have theirs, and down here I know Tay gets, well, Joni probably helps a little bit, and the grandkids occasionally, but they have their eggs. Anybody else raise, I about said raise their own eggs, raise, raise chickens? Whoa, oh, that's right, the dicks, of course. And, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, thank you, thank you, uh, Mr. Gus. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, but, okay, so we've got a few, but, but there are many of us who go to the grocery store to get our eggs. So uh, how many of you in the last maybe three or four years at one time or another have come home from the grocery store and then opened your, your egg carton and pulled and actually pulled and it didn't come because it was stuck because one of the eggs was cracked and it hardened? How many have dealt with that? A few. How many have dealt with it to where three or four of the eggs uh, is in that state? How many have dealt with that in the last couple of years? Josh Rule. Oh, Diane Bennis. Uh, so uh, for me, I remember being taught, I can't remember if it was from my, uh, my parents or my, my wife, uh, that said, Andy, you know, when you, when you, op- when you get eggs at the store, when you open the, open the carton, and then, you know, touch them and move them around a little bit and make sure they don't stick. Because if they stick, one of them's broken at some point and, and hardened and it's a gross situation. So I, I, I just was thinking about that here recently, actually today, and thinking, okay, so that's what I do. And then how many other hundreds of people do that with their eggs as they go to the store? It's kind of gross when you think about that. But, but, but still, if you do that and you don't have a bumpy ride home, you come home with, with 12 eggs that are usable. Uh, at, at some point, it becomes frustrating uh, for us, either if we bought a bag of apples and, you know, there's a little bit of a bruise on one of the apples. Uh, personally, my favorite are the Honeycrisp or the Jazz apples. Wow, they're just incredible. And if they're not quite tops, you put a little bit of lemon on that and then boom, it just pops. But, but it, what, what if it's got a little, little bruise here or there or, there, or, or if just maybe one, one apple in, in the set has that? What, what if it's two or three? At what point does it become unacceptable for us as in, in making a purchase? When we sometimes think about this, this situation of loss, of loss, uh, because of mankind's taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, understanding the concept of acceptable losses permeates about every aspect of our society. Think about that. Uh, when we go to the store, uh, when we uh, get... Uh, a, a box of navel oranges or grapefruit that come from Florida in, in the wintertime, and it's these, oh, these are supposed to be just perfect, and then you get those, and then two or three maybe have some mold on them because they've been sitting in the cartons for so long. There, there's a point at which rarely do we get in a situation where every single thing that we get is perfect. And again, it, it permeates all of society. It permeates uh, almost everything we get, a, a cut of meat that we, we get, and there'll be maybe too much fat or too much this or, or a, a little bit uh, too much of this. Uh, when we factor in insurance, and we've got actuaries that, that calculate the, the degree of loss of when something will happen, be it uh, determining the rates of our, our insurance on our, of what we would get from our roofs, at what point, after how, how many years will we at some point have hail damage, some type of hailstorm that's going to hit us here in North Texas. They, they, all those things are factored in. We're dealing with a society that, that recognizes that at some point there is going to be loss. At what point is the loss acceptable? And at what point does the loss become unacceptable? Uh, 
All of us deal with that in so many different aspects of, of life. You think about Social Security. Some of you are in a situation where you're considering, when do I start pulling Social Security? Do I get it at this age? What is it, 67 or something? Do I get it at that? It, but if I wait, well, I could draw it early, but I would have penalties. I wouldn't get as much, uh, but I would be drawing it. Uh, and, or should I, should I go, should I wait till 67? But what if I wait till 70? I can max out at 70. But then what if I bite the dust at 70.3 years old? You know, how do I calculate that? At some point there is going to be loss. How do I factor all of that in? Well, we don't just deal with insurance, flood insurance, premiums, and eggs. We also have loss of life. There's a term that, that is often called acceptable loss or acceptable damage or acceptable casualties that we see in military talk. Uh, what is an acceptable number of, of casualties if we, if we go to war? To some degree, it's, it's an ambiguous term, isn't it? Uh, to, to lose something, uh, a loss, and especially when we're dealing with human life, a loss that is acceptable, uh, a loss that is not a, a loss as a result of just living out one's life and dying at a ripe old age, but uh, an uneventful uh, loss uh, before you know that person would have normally lived. Uh, it, it's almost a, again an ambiguous term or a, a, a double uh, double double-tongued term, uh, so to speak. In, in just a Wikipedia definition, uh, this is considered a, a, a military euphemism. It's a military euphemism to use to indicate casualties or destruction inflicted by the enemy that is considered minor or tolerable. In combat situations, leaders have to often choose between options where no one solution, no one solution is perfect and all choices will lead to casualties or other costs to their own troops. A small-scale practical example might be when the advancement of troops is halted by a minefield. In many military operations, the speed of advancement is more important than the safety of troops. Thus, the minefield must be breached even if, if this means some casualties. I remember reading a story one time of, of talking about uh, uh, America heading towards, uh, towards the east during World War II for all the events that were going to be taking in the, uh, in the, at the Pacific uh, Theater uh, against the Japanese, and stating that as, as these convoys of ships were, were headed uh, to that area to, to fight in the Pacific Islands, uh, they needed to get there, and they needed to get there fast. And if a person fell off the ship, accident or something happened and people fell, they didn't stop uh, because the, the greater casualties could be experienced by not getting everybody there when they needed to get there. So that was considered an acceptable loss if we couldn't you know, grab that guy along the way when he fell off, uh, fell off the ship. Uh, but but uh, what, is, what is the best course of action? On a larger strategic level, there's a limit to how many casualties a nation's military or the public uh, are willing to withstand when they go to war. For example, there's an ongoing debate on how the conceptions of acceptable losses affect how the United States conducts its military operations. You know, we think of some of the situation of boots on the ground. Uh, automatically, when, when a country puts boots on the ground, uh, there, there could be a greater chance of success, but, but how many, when, when you put boots on the ground, there are going to be deaths. There, when you bring a large military group to a place, there are going to be deaths that end up occurring versus not putting boots on the ground and doing everything uh, electronically or by guided, you know, guided attacks. The, the concept of acceptable losses has all been also been adopted to business use, meaning taking necessary risks and the general costs of doing business, also covered with terms such as waste or shrinkage. This euphemism is related to the concept of acceptable risk, which is used in many areas such as medicine and politics to describe a situation where a course of action is taken because the expected benefits outweigh the potential hazards. How do, we, how do we deal with that? 
You know, a, a huge debate has uh, and continues to go on about the whole vaccine situation. And this message is not about the vaccine. But, but we're, we're, we're factoring that in, each of us individually, as we make choices about whether to get the vaccine, whether or not to get the vaccine, whether to get the booster, whether to not get a booster. Uh, and, you know, what, what are the, the potential side effects of the, the actual, of getting the, the vaccine? Uh, do those outweigh the, the danger of, of getting one of these strains of the virus that could be life-threatening, depending on our individual health situations and, and, and our struggles? It's, it's factoring in what, how should we make this decision? I remember having a conversation, I may have told you about this once, but I remember uh, having a conversation with uh, a pediatrician when I think it was Stacy, was, uh, our oldest, was, was young, and we were trying to make a determination of whether or not we would get the, the vaccine that was uh, pertussis for whooping cough and also diphtheria. I think it was the PTD, I think it was pertussis, tetanus, and diphtheria. We were trying to make a determination of do we get that uh, vaccine or not. Well, we were reading, and, and with the pertussis vaccine, uh, or aspect of it, there was a one in uh, like 68,000 or 168,000 chance that that she could be blinded, uh, react negatively to the to the vaccine, and be blinded by it. Uh, and as a result of that, just even knowing that there was that slight possibility, uh, we we talked with him and we decided, you know, not to get that, uh, get that. And you know, she she later got pertussis and battled that for a couple of months. It was a, a difficult go, but it was a decision that we we made. Uh, in, in trying to figure that out. Uh, we, back when polio had the live vaccine and the killed, uh, the live, the, I think it was a liquid form, but, but a live form and a, and a killed vaccine, the live form was, uh, there was a potential of it being actually contagious uh, to people, if they were around unvaccinated uh, polio, uh, people, unvaccinated people, there was a, a person could conceivably get the live virus and then pass that on to a person who was unvaccinated. And just all of those factors, you know, you start figuring that out. And so we, anyway, we were talking with the, the pediatrician about it and the pediatrician said, yes, there are risks. There, there definitely are risks and this percentage of people re, re, have these kinds of results. He said, uh, so I completely understand why you would choose not to get this or that vaccine at the time. He said, having said that, he said, I spent time in Africa serving and, and uh, trying to get vaccines to, to people, uh, to kids in areas where thousands, thousands were dying uh, as a result of not being vac vaccinated and, and these kinds of uh, conditions spread out and uh, completely wiped out large percentages of, of, of youths. So, you know, he, he's talking about that. He said, you, you probably would be okay here because most, most of the kids are vaccinated, so you, the chance of, of your daughter contracting this would be probably fairly slim. But, but, but what I'm getting at, again, is acceptable risk. Acceptable risk. Uh, what, are the, uh, what is the acceptable loss in that to, to, to make a decision? That is part of the nature of our society. It's, it's part of, of the, the decision to take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God pulled back and removed that, that, that situation that he originally intended with the Garden of Eden. So we, we, live, in, we live in that world. We live, we're making decisions about those kinds of things constantly. Let's turn to Luke 14. Some of you may be ahead of me with this. Let's turn to Luke 14 to begin. Can you imagine, I, I, I try to think of, you know, I, we think of ancient Israel and, and not working with converted people. We know that that's physical Israel and we, we are spiritual Israel now, that the nations of, of physical Israel are still uh, here and God uh, recognizes that and God's going to bring Israel back and use them as a model nation in the millennium as he begins to spread uh, his way to the rest of the earth. We understand all that. We know that we are spiritual Israel and, and we have a responsibility as God's people to, to, to be representatives of that, of that nation, that nation that is to come and we are to think like God. We are to try to have his mind 
but to, to process this. Can you, can you imagine being one of the, you know, a, a supreme allied commander, be, being President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or, or being uh, uh, Winston, uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and, and, and folks like General Eisenhower and, and others, Montgomery and, and uh, Patton and these different ones, making decisions in, in terms of what is the best way to, to attack Germany? What is the best way, Nimitz and all the other admirals out there, what, what's the best way to go about this to take on uh, Japan at the time? And knowing that, that it's all about acceptable loss. What, what is the acceptable loss here? If we go and do this, we, we can hopefully uh, gain victory. There's a high percentage that we will. There will be some loss associated with this against the Axis power. But the, the ultimate end is to defeat the Axis power. And in order to do so, it's going to cost us lives. And when I make this decision, I... Churchill, I, Roosevelt, I, uh, Montgomery, I, Patton, I, Eisenhower, when I make this decision, and we make this decision to attack Normandy, thousands of 17, 18 uh, young, young folks that are going to uh, sneak in and 18-year-old and, and older kids are going to be dead as a result. Uh, and, and, and is that an acceptable loss? They had to make decisions like that, and it, it is, it's amazing. I, I cannot imagine being in that kind of a role and the pressure uh, that, that is on. I know that some people relish that kind of power and that kind of a, a authority, uh, but, but when you, you, you count the human cost that's involved in those decisions, it is daunting. Luke 14 is the passage that we discuss, baptism. It's the count the cost chapter, and it's, it's all about the person coming to that point in his life where he or she realizes, this is the next step that I want to go in this commitment till I die. But I better count the cost about what I'm getting myself into, uh, into what I'm getting myself uh, as, as I go forward. It, should, should I do this? Can I finish this. But uh, nestled in that is this, this passage with, uh, with which many are familiar here. As he talks about the count the cost, Jesus Christ is talking about it. He's talking about a situation here uh, of mankind who has taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that deals with battles and killing uh, in order to, to have success. He says here in verse 31, Luke 14, or what king... Luke 14, verse 31, Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. The, obviously, the main emphasis here is that thing of, I better count the cost before I go forward. That is the key element. But, but the side element, a, a side element here is, is this is an example of what is acceptable loss. What is acceptable loss in, in making this decision uh, in, in going forward in battle? Pe people deal with that. When it comes, well, one other, one other thing, I, I think, as, as we look at history, Two major events happened at the end of, of World War II. We've got the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Was it worth it? Nagasaki, 74,000, mainly civilians, died. That's their best estimate. At Hiroshima, an estimated 140,000, uh, mostly civilians, died. Was it worth it? Did these bombings represent an acceptable loss of life by what they accomplished? They accomplished basically the end of World War II, did they not? Americans, as uh, the U.S. view of history, uh, is that realizing what happened at Okinawa and the, the battle that took there to, to gain access to that and to gain uh, control over that cost an incredible number of lives. Japanese, Japanese military, Japanese civilians, American military. 
thousands of lives just in that battle. And what America came to realize was that if we begin to attack Japan and, and do an invasion, it's going to be a long, protracted war. Many more thousand are going to die as a result of, of this long and protracted war. Not, not only U.S., but also Japanese. So the best decision here, the acceptable loss, is to bomb two cities and take out uh, 200,000 plus people. Just, it, it is a sad state of affairs, isn't it? This is humanity. This is humanity. And, and, and we reflect on that and, and we, 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 we I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not in any way uh, denigrating the, the decisions that, that have to be made and, and the leadership that uh, many of these people that are, were, were great leaders had to make. But it, but it is a product, is it not, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's a, it's a product of that, and that's what, that's what, that's what we deal with uh, as, as, as people, as part of this society. The Japanese view of history is a little different. They, they've said, as, as you can read, be it, be it an encyclopedia or what, their situation, their perspective often was things were in the process of moving towards a, a, a complete stoppage of the war, that things were in the works to do that. And they, they felt like Truman, by making that decision, jumped the gun uh, when they could have ended that uh, gracefully uh, through negotiations and diplomacy down the stretch. Uh, again, that, that's, his, that's, that's people's different view of history. Regardless, deaths occurred. So let me ask us this. Let's turn to James 4. When it comes to human lives... When it comes to human lives, here's, here's the, the main question that I want to ask today. Are there any acceptable losses in God's eyes? When we think about it, try to think of, we're, we're supposed to strive to have the mind of God, as 1 Corinthians 2 tells us. Uh, are there, is there such a thing as acceptable losses, a, a way of life for us in, in almost every facet of our lives? Is there such a thing as acceptable losses from God's perspective when it comes to human beings? How would you answer that? How would you answer that question? Because if, if we are thinking like God thinks, we should answer that question the same way God thinks. And as part of the citizens, uh, the, the soldiers in his army, the, 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 the citizens in, in, of his kingdom, we, we want to be valiant and faithful soldiers in, in his army. So we are to identify with, the, with, with our leader uh, who will lead us on to victory uh, with Jesus Christ's return. When it comes to human lives, are there any acceptable losses to God? James 4 speaks of, I think it's James 4 here, James 4 14, as, as God looks down upon humanity, it's, it's very important for us first as we begin to address this question today. That, that's, what, that's the title of the message, and, and that's uh, what we'll, we'll be getting at today as we go through this. James 4, verse 14, God looks at life a little differently than we, and we strive, we, we strive as, as we get older and older, we, we recognize, this, recognize this to a greater and greater degree, and as we've experienced tragedies in our lives, even if we're younger, we, we, we grasp this concept so much more quickly. But if we are to have the mind of God, we are to think about it in terms of God's, uh, God's view. James 4, verse 14, Whereas you do not know for what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? For you, for you and me, what, what is our life? It is even a vapor, just a puff of air that goes by. It's, it's here and it's gone. It's a vapor that goes faster by us than a, a puff of cigarette smoke that I'll smell. I'll think, I, I smell smoke. I, I can't believe growing up as a kid, I, I, we'd go to restaurants or go out and everybody smoked. And I was so used to it. But now, if I... I can pick up somebody smoking like a quarter of a mile away. I look, where is that person? They'll see them way down there. Uh, so uh, 
what I'm saying is the vapor goes faster by us even than a puff of somebody's uh, cigarette smoke. That lingers a lot longer. But, but it says here, it's a vapor. Our lives, humanity's existence, humanity's life is a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. How does God view true life? What, you know, what's, what's the end that he has in mind? We recognize that. We get that. We, we keep God's feasts. We, we see the plan of God. We know that God wants to give man, allow man to walk into eternity with him and live with him into eternity as part of his family. So, so but then again, understanding that, understanding that God sees our lives as a vapor and understanding what God wants to give us, do we how do we view acceptable losses in, 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 uh, with, with human beings? Does, does, does that in some way, because God sees us as a vapor, how does God view our lives? Are our thoughts aligned with him in this matter? As we view our own lives, as we view our family members' lives, as we view those in the world, those in the world who have not been called by God yet, those whom he may call now or in the future, those whom he may not call until later, do we know which will be which? Should it make a difference? Should it make a difference in this whole construct or, or examination of this question of, of this, the thing of how does God, uh, in terms of, of human beings, does he view things as acceptable losses? Should it make a difference in how we treat those in the world? Let's look at some scriptures. Some of these will be obvious, uh, some maybe not so. Let's go to first to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Hebrews 13, verse 1 acceptable losses with God. Oh, this guy, he's not, he's, he doesn't have the truth. He, this guy over here, he's on the street just walking. He's trying to panhandle. This person's over here. This person's over here. Uh, I'm not messing with them now. This idiot just tried to run me off the road. You know, you know all these guys, they're all a bunch of carnal, uh, whatever. You know, how do, we view, how do we view mankind? How do we view humanity? Hebrews 13, verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, now, now granted, we have to, to be safe. There, there are situations where, uh, you know, again, we need to use discretion uh, and, and not put ourselves in a completely unsafe situation for, for us or our family members. But, but as we have opportunity to interact with, with one, another's, how, one another, how do we treat them? For by so, so, by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. They, they do that. Angels come in. They, they, they come in and, and, and interact with mankind sometimes. And, and it's only afterwards that we think, I, that's, that was an interesting thing that just happened to me. That, that may have been an angel. Uh, many situations where I've heard stories of people saying uh, a person kind of came out of nowhere and helped them in a dangerous situation, then they looked around and the person was gone. Uh, you know, could it have been an angel? Possibly. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you are so, yourselves are in the body also. So we speak, speak here many of, of brethren in the faith, but also strangers, people that we, with whom we interact. How do we value them? Let's look at two major passages here. One is one that we know well. It's in John, and it is chapter 3, and it is verse 16. Turn there if you want. Don't if you don't want to. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. God loves the world so much he loves every single human being when he's talking about this he uh, not he's not talking about he loves the trees so much he loves you know the grass so much he's talking about human beings uh, for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son he gave jesus christ that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life 
He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's intent, God's purpose for every single human being is to give that person life, to give that person eternal life in his family. That is God's purpose, that is his function, that is his desire for all of mankind, that is what is on his mind, and it was so much that he and Jesus Christ developed what they did, a person who had eternal life that could be that sacrifice to then give eternal life. John 15, John 15, his love was so great that he did that. John 15, verse 13, another memory scripture. Greater love has no one than this. Greater love, uh, can, can you and I have, can you and I have and, and, and give and demonstrate, uh, no, greater love has no one than this, than to lay one's life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. God, as, as, as he looks at us, as Jesus Christ was talking with them, as, as he is by extension talking to us now, is, is that he wants us to have that mindset that we are willing to lay down our lives for one another. There is the discernment factor as we reflect on this. You know, Obviously, we, we know other passages where it's like the, the, the sheep and the, the one that goes astray leave the 99 and, and go after the one because we don't want to lose that individual. It's, it's, not, it's not acceptable to just lose this person. Uh, so we are to go after that one. But there, there is a discernment factor as well. We see God... We see God working with mankind, and yet God, in his, in his understanding of the reality of mankind, in, in understanding the reality of the power of choice that mankind has, and in understanding the reality that God is not calling everyone now, that there are going to be individuals, uh, the large percentage of humanity, that is not given eternal life or not, uh, ex not being extended that opportunity to gain eternal life right now. We, we get that. We understand that. But, but then again, do we recognize that and still value human life to the point that we are willing to lay down our lives for others, that we are esteeming others higher than ourselves? Or do we look at the world as, ah, it's all a mess, it's got to get cleaned up, uh, and when Christ comes, it'll get all turned around, and, and, and a lot of people are going to die, and so be it. Uh, I, I mean, I... I'm not saying that by, by recognizing that that's what's going to happen is, is, is evil in itself. It's not. It, it's the, it's, the, it's the, the way God has set that up. Is that we, we see how prophecy is coming out. We see uh, what's going to happen at the end by when Jesus Christ returns. We see that there are many that are going to turn against him. Uh, and millions are, are going to die in all of this. We, we recognize that. But he still... He's still in, in doing that. God is, is a God who can act out of love and of, perfect, and of perfect wrath because he is the one who intends to give mankind all that, oppor that opportunity for that in their time. We, as, as humans who are part of the body of Christ, can allow ourselves sometimes to get into an attitude of, of making ourselves uh, of putting ourselves in that situation of, of judging and condemning to the point that we don't value others and, and realize how God expects us to set that kind of an example that we should for others, should God want to be using us to, to bring them to him, as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh, let's, uh, so, so understanding that, there, there, there is a caveat. There is a caveat as, as we work with others and as we, as we value others uh, and, and try to put ourselves in a situation where we recognize that God could use us to bring, uh, bring others to him depending on when he wants to call. Let's look here. Titus, Titus 3. There, there, there are some caveats. Titus 3, verse 9. 
we, we can find ourselves sometimes in situations, though, in, in dealing with people and, and people that darken the door uh, of, of our services here from time to time. Uh, Titus 3, verse 9, he says, even though we are to, to value life as, as Jesus Christ uh, gave himself for all of mankind, it says, but avoid foolish disputes, Titus 3, verse 9, uh, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. These things are unprofitable and useless. Verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Well, wait a second. Well, we're supposed to go after the one. Well, we're supposed to go after the, you've got the 99 that are on track, and we've got the other, the one that's off. God, in his in, in his great knowledge and understanding, recognizes that we, as his people, are still human beings. And, and we, we have our challenges uh, as we interact with others. And if a person is being divisive, and, and he or she has been <laughs> warned and continues in that state, God recognizes for us to then continue to stay in that situation with that individual is it's going to... It's going to, it's going to uh, uh, wear off on us and it's going to cause to take us into a state to bring us down as well. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of us here have violated verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, where we've not re rejected uh, a divisive man after the first and second uh, admonition, but that it's actually been the ninth or tenth or fifteenth or sixteenth. I've been in that realm. And I, I've realized, you know what? I should have rejected the divisive man after the first and second admonition. Uh, you can come to a point where you, you finally recognize, yeah, this is why God says this, because it, it then begins to completely encompass all of our thinking because of this situation that cannot be that is not getting resolved and it saps us and takes uh, takes up so much much energy that it even creates a, a difficulty for us to be able to think on these things to think on all the things that are good and pure honest and right and all that God recognizes that about it about us, that, that we, we need to be in that kind of a state. So if someone is going off, then we, we've, we've got to remove ourselves from that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about that. Is that an acceptable loss, though? Is that, is that an, an acceptable loss? Uh, we'll get to that. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5 speaks... Uh, to the degree that it's not, it's not us saying, oh, yeah, there are going to be, Scripture says there are going to be these people, so, okay, c'est la vie, uh, you know, here they go, uh, uh, that's, that's the way it is. Uh, it's an acceptable loss. There are going to be people that fall into that category. Uh, he, does he view it that way? Do we view it that way? No, no, we shouldn't, because this is the, this is the active way that Paul talks about how we should view that. Um, the situation, again, of the the individual that was uh, involved in sexual immorality with his father's wife. He says here in verse 4, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person who is involved in this kind of uh, conduct, who considers himself a brother and is posing as a brother in a sense, delivers such a one to Satan... For the destruction of the flesh. Yeah, there are going to be a bunch that go out that way and so be it, whatever. No, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There, so there is an action that God wants to take because he doesn't want it to be a loss. It's not an acceptable loss. But knowing because a person is in that state, the only way to begin to to. to to get that person hopefully to see is to separate. As long as we stay with that person and, and he or she's involved in all of that mess and it's, it's just, oh, it's, it's okay. They're all here together. It, it, they'll come around. Now, when, it, when it's that kind of thing, there needs to be a separation so the person can recognize this will not work. I'm on the path <laughs> to destruction. I'm on the path to the lake of fire if I don't turn my life around here. Uh, it's, it's because it's not an acceptable loss uh, to God. So even in that situation, as he continues, we won't go through that passage, but as we read later in 1 Corinthians 5, especially verses 9 through 13, it talks about 
that distance, setting up that distance in that situation uh, so, so that hopefully, again, like we, we see in verse 5, that the person will turn. Second Peter 3, uh, we, we won't turn to 1 John 5, uh, Hebrews 10. They also speak to, to individuals that are in that state. But 2 Peter 3 is, is a passage we, we hear read uh, and we study ourselves uh, as we come to the, the great white throne judgment, the, the final day, uh, that final holy day in the, in the holy day calendar. But we, we, we answer that question with this term of acceptable losses to God in how God views humanity. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 Verse 8, actually. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years it's, it's as one day. But realize this, the Lord is not slack according, uh, is not slack according, uh, concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But this great God that we serve is long-suffering. He's long-suffering toward us, and boy, we're thankful for that. But it says here, as we know, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I submit to you that there are no acceptable losses to God, because God views it from the grand scale. God's ultimate goal is to bring all of mankind in his time to repentance, that they might live with him for eternity. In, in a state of being a part of his family. That is God's preferential will. We have the power of choice. That is his preferential will, though, and God has established uh, a plan to give all of mankind that opportunity because he does not want any perish. He is not willing. That, that is not his preferential desire. Uh, and, and it's beyond just a preferential desire. It is a situation where God, who is this incredibly long-suffering God, looks at all mankind, as he's done with each of us and his mercy and patience with us, that, that he is, is going to give all that opportunity in perfect mercy, in perfect, perfect love, and perfect care and compassion and understanding to give each person person who's ever lived that opportunity to make that choice. That is an incredible God. That is, is a God who does not have acceptable losses. And I, I find that being in this world, dwelling in a world that has taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and nibbled on that a little bit myself, I, I find myself not sometimes having that, that passion and that desire to view mankind and to view God as this kind of God. This is who he is. This is who he is about every single person who's ever lived. It makes a difference how I act in front of every single person. It makes a difference how uh, each of us acts with one another and with all of mankind. Uh, realizing that God's desire and the way God values his creation, all of these human beings that are made in his image, how much he values them to want to bring them into his family for eternity. We serve a, a great and wonderful God. Let's look at the parallel passage. The parallel passage in 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I, I encourage you, I exhort you, lighting the fire under us. You can do it. I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. That, that's, that's pretty major. For kings and all who are in authority. Uh, he, he crystallizes it for what purpose, because we recognize the, the kingdom we represent, the, the citizenship where we lie, uh, that we can uh, lead a, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence uh, and tied to our ability to, to get out and preach, preach that gospel. Uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our, our Savior. Verse 4, here it is, we know it. 
good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, this, this being who desires all men to be saved. There is, are there acceptable losses to God? No, his desire is for all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man. There's the man, Jesus Christ. This individual gave himself a ransom for all, for everybody, for all of mankind to be testified in due time. Paul says, this is the reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ in this, he's saying. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith in truth. God determines, he purposes mankind as, their, as mankind is called and as their minds are open, all will have the opportunity to choose and be given time to choose and recognize. We, we get that. But God's purpose, his determination is, is to give all of mankind that, uh, that opportunity. Let's look at uh, Romans 9. Romans 9, I, I find that Romans 9 through 11 are some of my favorite passages to which to turn as we, as we move into the, the fall holy day season each year and we start thinking about the millennium, we start thinking about the great white throne judgment and what this master potter is doing uh, and, and how he is in control of, of all of his clay. <laughs> but uh, Romans 9 verse 6, Romans 9 Verse 6, Paul's talking about Israel, those who are part of Israel and, and recognize the, recognizing the difference in, in how the new covenant Israel, the Israel of God, are made up of all types of races, but they, they are, are engendered by the Spirit through the sacrifice of Christ and uh, have his Holy Spirit as part of the body. But he says, verse 6, but, it's, but, it, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Those who are, were physical descendants of Israel, he, sa he says, in, in, in truth, they are not all Israel. God, as God views mankind, is, is building... Uh, up his church, which is the Israel of God. That's, that's, and this Israel of God, uh, his people will go into eternity, those that uh, are spiritually sired and, and then spiritually changed are, are of Israel. Uh, it will be of Israel into eternity. He says, nor are they all children because they're of the seed of Abraham. In Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So he goes through and, and, and talks about uh, all of that in, in describing uh, how that occurred. Uh, but then he says in verse 14, as not working with, as working through Jacob, but not working through Esau in verse 13. But he says in verse 14, so what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. We, we couch that, though, that statement with 2 Peter 3, 9, 1, Peter, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4. If, if he is, is desirous of all mankind to be saved, if he's not willing that any should perish, we recognize that it's a matter of timing on when God has compassion and when God has mercy. But he's the master potter. He's the one that sets that all up. And he is the one who, in his perfect love, calls and draws when he will. Because he is not willing that any should perish. So he says, uh, so then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And he talks about Pharaoh and, and all that Pharaoh's purpose was in, in terms of that. So then he comes to verse, verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Well, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy uh, whom he had prepared uh, beforehand for glory 
talking here about uh, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. He says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. God is going to give all mankind in, 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 in his time that opportunity to have that situation where they are called my people, where they are sons of the living God. This, this is the God that we serve. Romans 11, Romans 11. speaks a, a little bit more to that uh, of, of, of the blinding uh, of, of Israel, physical Israel, that the Gentiles might come in. Uh, I'll just break into the thought where he's saying in verse 25 of Romans 11, I don't, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, he says, lest we'd be wise in our own opinions. And he comes to the point in verse 26, and so even though Israel had been blinded at that time, he says, and so all Israel is going to be saved. All Israel is going to be saved. He's going to give all of them that opportunity. Uh, look at verse, uh, verse 32. For God has committed or he shut them up in, in, to disobedience now that he might have mercy on all. God at, at, in his time is going to give mercy and extend mercy to all because he's not willing that he should perish because he wants all to come to him to be saved. He uh, is desirous to bring all mankind into his family. This is the God who preferably would have no losses, uh, no acceptable losses in his, in his mind. A couple of final passages to, to wrap this up as we think about this concept going forth today. Let's go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Uh, prophecy uh, dealing with the, the millennium, which would extend on into the great white throne judgment. Isaiah 56. Since for us, as, as, we go, as we go forward from here, as, as we live our lives now, uh, we think of how this will be, as, how this should be for us as a foretaste of the millennium, how it will come to pass in the millennium and on into the great white throne judgment. As we said, Isaiah 56, verse 1, thus says the eternal, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. This is what we represent. This is the, the, the commander-in-chief whom we support fully. We're talking about that. We're thinking about that. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Mr. Demarest gave a, an excellent message uh, last Sabbath about just that, that aspect of God's truth, of that rest that God intends for us, uh, not only physically but spiritually, uh, from, from all the evils of the world as we keep Sabbath every, every, every week, and keeps his hand from doing all evil. Verse 3 don't let the son of, of the foreigner who has joined himself to the eternal speak, saying, Ah, oh, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. I, I'm, I'm out here. I'm a foreigner. I'm not connected. No, don't let him think that. Because God, uh, there are no acceptable losses with God. God uh, seeks to bring all to him. He, the foreigner he will bring to him. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a, a dry tree. I can't have any offspring. I, I've been made a eunuch. Thus says the Eternal to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. No acceptable losses with God. He give all an opportunity, even the eunuchs. In a, in a time when to not be able to have offspring and carry on your lineage was, was, was 
of prime import in, in people's lives. He's using that example to show this is what they're going to, to receive. Sons of the foreigner who joins them, join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I'll bring to my holy mountain and I'm going to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says... Yet, yet I will gather to him others, others besides those who are gathered to him. Back a chapter, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread uh, and your wages for what does not satisfy? God says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Verse 3, Isaiah 55, incline your ear to me. Come to me, here and your soul shall live. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. Nations who do not know, uh, know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 6, so we now are to seek the eternal while he may be found. We are to call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. As part of this end time uh, facet of, of God's church that was established uh, at Pentecost in 31 AD. We're a part of this. We're a part of this mission. We, we look forward to the time when God brings them uh, back to the Lord, seeing him have mercy on all, and seeing God abundantly pardon all of mankind. Finally, 1 Peter 2. So living in the midst of a, of a nation and as a society that deals with acceptable losses and to where it's a part of every facet of our lives, and yet being a part of the church of God, a, a, a nation who is not of this world, how, how are we doing in this area? Are we thinking as God thinks? How, how, how do we think and act around others in the faith? How do we think and act around others outside the faith? How we view all people is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to him. Because he loves mankind. Mankind's made in his image. And God's looking forward to giving them that opportunity. As we look at those around us, does the acceptable losses mentality of human nature Business, national governments, militaries, government agencies, private businesses, nearly all facets of life which deal with acceptable loss. How does that sneak in in our lives? Or do we possess the mind of God in this area as we think of mankind and what mankind's purpose is? Every single human being that's out there with whom we come in contact. We can find ourselves taking on this acceptable loss mentality in our view of many areas of life around it. We know this passage, but I'll read it. I would encourage you to read 1 Peter 1, 22, all the way through chapter 2, verse 17. But let's pick up here in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2 verse, verse 9, after he talks about us as, as being the... Uh, the royal priesthood, and now having obtained mercy and, and are, the, are the people of God. Verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from these fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then he makes this statement, having your conduct attractive or honorable 
winsome, W-I-N-S-O-M-E, having our, our conduct winsome among the Gentiles, that when they see us and they see us live our lives, even though they speak against us as evildoers for doing what's right, they may, by your good works which they observe, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. This God, who has no acceptable losses, that is seeking to bring all to repentance, will will visit them at some point. He may be visiting them now through us and our example now. He may visit them when he brings them up in the great white throne judgment. He may visit them as we see the great tribulation come. He may visit them in a few months from now. We don't know. We don't know. But we, we value life and we value each individual and we recognize that it is a big deal to God in how we conduct ourselves in front of these individuals, that they, by, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I wish I could say that everybody who's ever inter- interacted with me on any level, uh, when they hear my name and they hear God's truth, would glorify God. I can tell you that probably won't be the case because I have not lived a perfect life. I have not set a perfect example in my life. I have striven to, I have failed, and when I fail, I try to get that right uh, with that individual and, and uh, when I'm able. But I've made mistakes in my life, and, I, and, I, and I, this is the goal. This is the goal that all of us strive to do because we value life as God values life. So I would ask us, as as we think about that and as we go forward, may we step back, step back from this society in which we live, view each life individually. Yes, of course, recognize what's God's prerogative in others' lives, because what what he can and will do as the creator and as the master potter, God, God is in charge of others' lives. But we understand what his mindset is and what his desire is to give mankind that, that whole opportunity as when he chooses to do so, as we've read today. But recognizing that it is God's master, as the master potter, his prerogative, when he chooses to call, may we realize our place as Christians in the body of Christ. We are Christians in the body of Christ who are heralding that next event in the plan of God. We're heralding it, the coming of the King, as the Son who loves the world, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who inhabits eternity, as this, this Son who has the keys to the grave as he begins the process of giving every single person that opportunity. Do we view mankind, do we view each and every human being in this light?